Maybe have 20 seconds to get your last sentence out. How long is a sentence supposed to be, by the way? Complete. Yeah, you ever read William Faulkner in school? Like The Sound and the Fury or, you know, William Faulkner, Pulitzer Prize, Nobel Prize. Um, uh, he has some sentences that are three pages long. Uh-uh. Sentences. There's, anybody ever read what I'm talking about? I mean, I don't really like his writing because I think he was a little crazy. If you read The Sound and the Fury, it's like, what? you get done with it and you're like, this won a, I think it won the Pulitzer and you're like, what was this about? I, I don't know. But he did write three-page sentences at times, so... I guess it's okay. You can win the Nobel Peace Prize by doing that. So, um, we're not talking a Faulkner sentence. You've got to wrap it up in a concise, normal sentence. We are considering Christian Evans's in this class. And today, we are transitioning to the Bible. How we got the Bible. Evidences in regard to the authenticity and the reliability of the Scriptures. Now, this question is vitally important because a person can believe in deity they can believe that because of their observation of the world around us that there is a creator that design demands a designer we've talked about that but I ask you this question if you don't have the Bible what do you know about the creator Okay, you think things, but that, that wouldn't be something you know. You wouldn't, right? Yeah, so what would you see? What, what would be the limitations of what you'd know without the Bible? First of all, would you be able to know, or would there be reasonable evidence to know that there is a, a God or gods? Right? I mean, what, why would you assume there's one? Have you noticed that most pagan cultures were deists I mean they, they believed in deity but they didn't believe in single deity they believed in plural multiple deities because if you don't have the Bible then what what why would you not think that I mean it seems like a whole lot of work to be over all of it so maybe one is over the sky and one's over the earth and one's over the fire and one's over the sea and one's right I mean would that not be reasonable okay what what about this if you don't have the Bible, do you know God is good? Do you think, does anybody think you could know God is good without the Bible? Would it not be just as much evidence that he's evil? I mean, a person loses four little children in childbirth? I mean, you understand what I mean? What, so that would be dependent on a per, person's personal experience, Right? One person would say he's good. Another person would just as reasonably say he's evil. Here's my point. The only thing you can know about God without the Bible is that there is one. Or many. That something beyond the design, some designer or errs, exists beyond the design. That's all you can know about God without the Bible. So how important is the revealed scripture? 
absolutely essential. This is the point at which you have a lot of folks today who believe in the divine. They're spiritual. But they're not sure they believe in the reliability of the Bible. And to be fair, I'm trying to be fair and open-minded about this. I mean, if you come from a totally non-believer, non-Christian perspective and you just open it up in certain places and especially if you read skeptics who just pick and choose and point to certain parts would it be that unreasonable to say that ain't that was just written by men i mean especially if you just pick and choose pieces out of it right skeptics are good at that they point i mean the islamic folks have an entire schools that teach them how to poke holes in scripture with supposed inconsistencies then there's the whole issue of translations everybody understands how we've gotten the bible over the course of the last two thousand years right the printing press has been around how long 350 400 years so for a quarter of that time we've had the printing press Prior to the printing press, what was the only way you could have a copy of the Bible? You know what's interesting about that is if I took a piece of paper and I wrote a complex William Faulkner sentence on it, okay? And I took it over and I handed it to Jeff and I say, make a copy of this and destroy the old one. Destroy the original. And he'd make a copy and then he gave it to you and you were to make a copy of his copy and destroy the original. And then you passed it back and you made a copy. Then you made a copy. 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 Cop, 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 cop. And they just kept being destroyed. How many of you think that when we get to the very back, you're going to have the exact same thing as the very first one? Now, if it's three words, maybe. If it's, even if it's 20 words, maybe. But if it's hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of words is it going to look exactly like this one after it's went through 150 copies uh-uh it isn't huh yeah and we'll discuss that but but i mean just that basic principle that's a basic principle and i'm going to tell you that we need to understand that because we need to be honest, intellectual people who realize the human error in translation. Especially when it's hand copied. Now, if you have a printing press, that changes the game a little bit because it makes a photostatic exact copy, right? It's an exact copy. But by hand, it's not an exact copy. So, this creates a problem. And it creates a problem because there are several translations of the Bible today. And they do not all read the same. They don't all read the same, correct? Who has an NIV? Don't, you don't have to be ashamed. It's fine. Um, okay. Dean, why don't you... I'm going to have you read something in a minute. Who has a King James or a New King James Version? Okay, in the back. Would you read for me Acts 8.37? And then I'll have you read it as well, okay? 
Acts 8, 37. New, King James, New King James first. Okay, that's Acts 8.37. Go ahead. Acts 8.37 in the NIV. <laughs> Sorry to make you my guinea pig, buddy. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It skips from Acts 8.36... To Acts 838, doesn't it? Let's do another one. Um, Acts cha uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And again, NIV, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is not dogging on the NIV. My dad used the NIV my whole life. It's not my preference, but I believe you can learn the truth by reading from the NIV. Okay. But I'm just making a point about translation. Go ahead. Okay. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walketh not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Go ahead. You have half of it. Go ahead. Is that verse 2 you just read? Okay, read the, re the other half of verse 1. For what? What's the rest of the verse? There is no rest of the verse. For those who walketh not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit, is what it says in the King James, New King James. Go ahead, Diane, you said that. It does. It does. Okay. Um, let's do another one. James chapter one. What's the one where, um, it says, what's the verse, which verse is it in James one about man is led off by his own desires or lust. And when lust is conceived, he gives birth to sin. Okay. Let's turn over James one and we'll do to do the same exercise. Uh, James chapter one. I'm just using my Bible to find it, not because not I'm taking y'all's thunder from your reading. You're doing an excellent job, both of you. Okay. Uh, verse 14. R read James 1, verse 14. Okay, but... When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. Okay, go ahead and read it in the NIV. James 1.14, NIV. That's all right, that's all right. James 1.14. Read one more time just to refresh our memory from King James, and then we'll have it from NIV. Okay, each man is tempted. This is the process of temptation. Each man, every single one of us that have ever been tempted, whether we gave in to sin or not, this is the process. When a man is tempted, he is drawn away by his own lust, and when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Okay, read there. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and 
Okay, is there, now desire and lust are the same word, okay? That's why we often get this wrong because we don't use those words interchangeably. This is a side note. Um, lust and desire. Did Jesus ever lust? He, he did. Jesus did lust. Lust is not sin. That's what the Bible says. It says that when you lust, you have to lust to be tempted. And the Bible says Jesus was what? Tempted in every point just like his brethren. But you say, but preacher, I've got you. Because Jesus said if any man lusts after a woman, he's already committed it. No, he doesn't say that. He said if any man looks upon a woman to lust after her. In other words, Jesus doesn't say if you lust after a woman. It says if you intentionally lust after a woman. And there is a difference, folks. What's the difference? Walking down the beach. Ooh. That's called desire, lust, right? Versus, ooh. Right? I mean, there's a difference. You can't read certain magazines just for the articles. Right? <laughs> I was barely alive. I was born in 71. I was like nine years old. I remember my dad saying it though. And that's, that's the point is that Jesus says, but we get those confused because we only use lust in a particular way, but the word means, I mean, right there in two Bibles, it's using interchangeably, synonymously, the word desire and lust. And the Bible says Jesus, he was tempted in every way, just as we were. The difference is, is you and I have allowed lust to conceive and give birth to sin, and Jesus never went to that point, Right? He never allowed it to consume. That's a side note. What is important to this discussion is in your version, it used the word desire instead of lust. That's no problem. They're the same thing. But your version has a word right before the word desire. What is it? Drawn away by his own. And is, it, is there anything noted about that word? Is it a different text or anything? It's italicized, isn't it? Is it italicized in your version? Oh boy, they've just gotten brazen now if they're not even italicizing it. In most versions, it's italicized. Or many copies, it's italicized because when a word is italicized in an English Bible, do you know what that means? It's not there. It doesn't exist in the original. But the translators of English just thought, I think this is what it means. I think this will help people understand it. So I'm going to add a word. And when they're most honest about it, they italicize. But even sometimes they get to the point where we're so used to it, they stop dropping the italics. Okay. Now, the problem with that is you might say, well, what does it matter? It's evil desire. It, it does matter. Because that's partly why we've misunderstood the word lust. Because it calls it evil desire. Is desire sin yet? No, it becomes evil after you, I mean, if evil and sin are synonymous words, then desire becomes sin after you what? Give in to it, after you yield to it, after it's conceived. 
But see, not from a Calvinist mindset, right? Because they believe we're depraved to start with, with Adam's sin. And the point I'm making by all of these texts, and I could give you a whole bunch more. The point I'm making by all of these texts is to show you we have to be somewhat learned about this to be able to have an intelligent, um, educated conversation with people about the Bible. Because if you didn't know these things we're talking about, then you could be taken, it's okay to be taken off guard a little bit in this class. But what you wouldn't want is that to happen sitting across the coffee table trying to defend the validity of the Bible. Right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so how does this happen, right? The reason it happens is because of the historical process whereby we have the Bible. God did not miraculously preserve for us his word. God providentially preserved for us his word. Now, we've talked about this a bunch here. There's a big difference. You do not hear me unless it's a slip of the tongue because I live in the same society you do, so sometimes I fall into the same mental patterns. But you don't hear me use the word miracle often like other people use the word miracle. For instance, we are pretty excited about the newest member of our family. I'm very excited. Lenora is another level of excited. <laughs> So much so that during service, she actually just turned her phone on four times just to see his picture on the cover screen. Yeah, there's a lot of FaceTime calls at my house. And you know, oftentimes when a child is born, everybody's excited. It's, I mean, I love the passage that was read at the table at first service where Jesus says, you know, you suffer, a woman suffers through, but all that suffering's forgotten with the new child that comes into the world. And people will say, what a miracle. I understand what you're saying. You're saying that was God did that. And you're right about that. But the usage of the term miracle is somewhat incorrect there. And we want to say that because we think miracle is more so or more emphatic talking about the working of God. I think we've misunderstood that too. I personally think providence is superior to miracle. And I believe we still have God working. I would not pray if I didn't believe that. Right? In fact, I frankly don't understand how determinists pray. Or why they pray. A determinist would be someone who believes that the outcome's already determined. That God already has decided everything that's going to happen is going to happen. And free will is kind of an illusionary thought. So it's already determined. So if it's already determined that someone I love that's sick is going to pass, then what difference will it make if I pray about it? It won't. So that's determinism. So I, I don't believe in that. I pray. But I do believe that God works, but I don't think he works in miracle because frankly, he works in something better, which is providence. Providence. 
The difference is this. Life of Moses. Moses experienced both types of God's working. What's an illustration of a miracle in the life of Moses? Burning of the bush that didn't consume. Um, that one's kind of, amazingly, that one's kind of minor. In, in Moses, the staff, I mean, yeah. All the stuff he did with his staff, huh? Oh, the leprosy and yeah. Okay, these are all good examples. Water from the stone. Um, what, name some of the big, big ones. I mean, it can't be... Red Sea, I mean, yeah, the plagues that turned the sky dark for three days. I mean, the river turned into blood. Yeah, I know. It's just amazing. It's unbelievable. All of these incredible miracles. And nobody said, well, I don't think that's a miracle. Nobody said that, even the Egyptians. Because when it comes to miracles, they're undeniable. But Moses also experienced providence. Anybody think of a time he experienced God's direct working in the affairs of men through providence? How about what? when he was a baby? His mama did what? To save him from Pharaoh's murderers. She took, she put him in a basket and she set him afloat on a crocodile infested and the most traveled, boat traveled waterway on the planet. I mean, with hippos and crocodiles and, and waves and I mean, everything, and it dumps into the, to the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, it's just everything imaginable. A helpless, defenseless little baby on a basket, and he just so happens to float up to shore at the only single spot where he could be saved. Right where it so happens Pharaoh's daughter, who just so happened to want a baby really bad, happens to be bathing at that exact moment, and the basket shows up right there. Miracle? No. Because could a skeptic say, well, it just so, it was, it was a big time weird coincidence, but it was a coincidence. You see, on, when God works providentially, the people who don't want to believe can reasonably say, I say reasonably, they can say that it's coincidence. Because you only see providence through the lens of faith. Here's the thing. Providence, because you see it through faith, builds faith. Miracle does not. I've heard Christians say, I just wish the Lord would reveal himself to my child or to my parents that don't love the Lord. I wish he would. No, you don't. Because they still wouldn't be saved. In fact, it, they would be less saved. You know, I know this. Okay, tell us, tell us about that. Oh, I can't speak loud enough. Okay. Luke 16, okay. There, the, what, I, the, what was running through my mind was the fact, how many people walked across the sea on dry ground looking at the walls of water? That, they say probably an estimate of one and a half to two and a half million people. How many of those fa folks had real faith and made it into the promised land 40 years later? Two. Maybe their wives, I don't know. But two out of two million. So miracles build faith, right? How many people saw Jesus feed the 5,000? Duh, 5,000. Mm. Yeah, more than, yeah, it was 5,000 men. So more than 5,000, yeah, but at least 5,000. And when they came back the next day, read John, I mean, 
Is it Mark 6? I think it's Mark 6. John 6. It's one of the sixes. Okay. Um, they come back the next day and Jesus doesn't feed them again. So what do they do? And he says just what we think of as kind of a benign statement of all of his I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. And they leave in droves. They saw a miracle, didn't they? They saw a basket that ran, never ran out, ran out of bread. They saw a can of sardines that never ran out of sardines. Yeah, John 6. They saw it. They never, it never ran out. And they, I mean, that's pretty incredible. But how many of them had faith? Not very many. You see, miracles, they cause, they cause belief, but belief isn't what God wants in and of itself. Every one of you believe in that there's a Waterford Church of Christ church building. But that's not called faith. Because faith is what we cannot see. And faith is believing based upon hope, not proof. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if we were to get God to reveal himself to the people we want to be saved, it would probably hurt their ability and their chances of being saved. Because it would mean that they would believe in him, but they wouldn't love him. Right? So, providence. God did not preserve the Bible through miracle. He preserved it through providence. And he did it subtly through the hands of mankind who translated it over the course of 2,000 years and copied it and copied it and copied it and copied it. When we're arguing for the absolute perfection of the Bible, it is rather important to argue for the absolute perfection of the original autographs. You know what the original autographs is? What's your, what's your John Hancock, right? Your autograph. I mean, when you, have you ever had to sign documents remotely? And now they're allowing this electronic signature, but they're not doing that on the most important documents. When you buy a house, guess what you'll have to do? If you're out of state, we've had to do this before. They will FedEx it to you one day at a fee of $32, and then you will sign it and you will FedEx it back because they need your original autograph. So I believe with everything in me that the original book of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote had no errors and was perfect. Now, I don't, I don't know if it had spelling errors. I, that wouldn't be important. But I mean, as far as it being absolutely perfect as inspired by God. However, it has been copied for 2,000 years. And what we have is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. I also believe that our copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, that the essence of it was preserved through God's providence through the years. But that we have to use our intellect to, Ron referred to this before, compare. And all, that's what all of your English translations are. None of them are translated from one single Greek text or Aramaic or Hebrew. They're all translated by comparing hundreds, sometimes thousands of texts. And they write in there what the most of those agree upon. That's a scientific, reasonable way to do so. But when you look back through time, there will be copies that differ from other copies. 
What to me is the most profound because of his providence is that you cannot find major differences in truths as far as doctrinal truths, imperative truths. They still speak the same thing, even the thousands, 5,000 plus copies. What you do find little errors or little changes in is you don't find Acts 8.37 in some of them. But you do find it in others. Is everybody wrapping your mind around this a little bit? John. Very little. It's incredible. a good thought we had a comment in the back I think I accidentally skipped you did you have a thought yeah uh-huh. yeah that's exactly right and absolutely that God works providentially in it, and that the essence, although there may be some spelling changes or there may be little differences, the essence is the same. I mean, you get the same story in Acts 8 and the NIV that you do in the King James, right? Although that verse is omitted, you're still getting the same essential message. And now to explain to you just a little bit of technical about how this is, you're going to see the most difference between King James, New King James, and the other versions, okay? If you look to the minutiae, to the details, there's gonna be a lot of differences because they used a different basis from which to translate. Y'all know I use the New King James Version. I'm a King James, New King James guy through and through, up and down, back and forth. I passionately believe in it. I don't have an issue with those who passionately believe in the other approach, but I, I think... My passion is as reasonable as yours if you like the other ones better. And my reason is a textual reason. Most folks just choose the Bible they read because they like the way it reads. And I think that's okay. But when you look, what, what has happened is the King James Bible was translated in what year? 1611. We're talking 400 years ago, Okay. Yeah, you couldn't, if you ever read an original King James Bible, you cannot read it because English has changed that much, okay? But the King James Bible was translated from the best manuscripts they had at the time. But in 1611, a major study was, didn't exist that we call archaeology, okay? So the best things they had was about 5,000 texts that date back to about, what, the 7th, 6th century, somewhere in there? 8th? 
7th, 6th, 8th century. So they're removed from the original apostles by around five to 600 years, okay? So what that means is that the oldest one they had was still five, 600 years removed from the original apostles. But they had a whole bunch of them. And so they did exactly what was described. They went through and they said, where do the, of these 5,000, what do they most agree on? And they went with the majority text. So that, they call that the Textus Receptus. Now, since 1611, we've had all sorts of sciences developed, including the science of archaeology. And archaeologists, I mean, they had them before 1611, but they were called grave robbers, okay? But since that time, we have a, we have a, a discipline now called archaeology. And so, you know, especially you get into the 1800s, it really becomes a, a passion of a lot of people. And you'll find... They'll go and they'll be doing digs in Egypt and they'll find all sorts of things. They'll do, they'll uncover uh, ancient ruins in Greece and in Rome and Italy and they'll find all sorts of things. Asia Minor in, in the promised land of, of what is today Israel. They'll find all of these things. And so they found some texts that are much older than the ones that were used to translate the King James. Much older. Yeah, one of them was brought, you're talking about Sinaiticus? Okay, it's Codex Sinaiticus, this is amazing. This is in the 1800s, somewhere around 1850, 1860. There was a, the traditional site, I don't think it was there, but the traditional site of Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula, that part between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, between Egypt and Arabia. And the traditional site of Mount Sinai was in, in that piece of land. And there was a monastery, a Catholic monastery there, and a scribe, a scholar was, you know, monks would go on these little journeys, like crusades, I guess, of their own making, to go into study in different places. And he was traveling, and he went there to Mount Sinai, because it's a, quote, holy place. And it was very cold at night, and he asked, can I have a log or something to burn in my fireplace so that I can stay warm? And they said, well, we're all out of wood. I mean, it's a desert but we've been burning papers. We got lots and lots of old papers. It's amazing. So they bring him a bucket of old papers and he starts looking at them and they're written on old vellum. Vellum is an ancient writing. They used papyrus and vellum. Papyrus was a paper made from the reeds of the Nile River pressed together and vellum was really thin, um, untanned leather really thin, untanned leather. And they would write on both of those. There were sheets of old vellum. And because he was a scribe and a scholar, he recognized them as being very, very old. He took them, them back and it was a, most of them were still there. I think parts of it probably got burned. But most of it was still there. And who knows how many other great old documents were burned in that monastery. But they, he took these back and it was found out and it is the second oldest mostly complete manuscript of the Bible known in existence. It dates from about the second or third century. They were using it for fire. Yeah. And that's an amazing story. The oldest is the Codex Vaticanus. Guess where that one's housed? 
in the Vatican. So good luck seeing that one. But it's, it's the oldest. There's another one called the Codex um, Alexandria, which you can't see. It's in the British Museum. And then there's a fourth old one called the Codex Bizet that's a little bit problematic because you can't hardly tell if it's a Bible or a commentary because whoever translated that one felt he could just go ahead and write his own notes right in there in the text. And so it's quite, it's like the living Bible of 1,700 years ago, okay? So it's just, you know, a paraphrase more, more than anything. But especially those three, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and Codex Alexandrian were discovered in the last 400 years after the King James Version and they date back much older, hundreds of years prior to everything they had in 1611. So here's the issue. Some of the stuff that made it from the Textus Receptus, the body of evidence, into the King James Bible is not found in most or all of those three. Okay? Here's an interesting one. Read... Um, it'll be in your Bible for sure, but read John, just turn to John 8, 7, 59 through 8, 1. I think 59 is the last verse, of, maybe it's seven fifty three. Whatever the last verse is of John 7, yeah, but it, it starts in the verse, the last verse of John chapter 7. What's the last verse of John 7? 52. Okay, read 52 and then 8, 1. Okay, continue just a verse or two more. Okay, that's good enough. Everybody knows this story, right? Woman caught in adultery. Jesus draws on the ground with his finger. Um, he says, he was without sin, cast the first stone. And they kind of let that sink in and then they leave from the oldest to the youngest. And he says, does no one condemn you, woman? She says, no one, Lord. She, he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Classic story. Is there any brackets or any footnotes or anything around that particular text? Everybody hear that? The earliest and most reliable manuscripts. None of those three old ones have that story. None of the three old ones. Okay. Uh, they don't have John, Acts 8.37. That's why it's not in your NIV. They don't have the last half of Romans 8.1. That's why it's not in the NIV. All right. Everybody got this, right? So there's two philosophies of Bible translation. There's the King James my philosophy of it, which is a quantity argument. And then there is the argument for NIV, New American Standard, all of the newer Bibles that are based upon, heavily based upon those oldest few, and they're very few, three, four, five of them. Yeah, the Bizet is one of them. So really three, because that one's crazy. So really three. And it's based upon those. And... And that is not a quantity argument. That's a quality argument. 
Everybody understand the difference? Because the logic goes that the closer you are to the... In other words, if Jeff starts and copies it the first time, the copy we get from Kim right here is most likely going to be more accurate than the copy we get from Bill Gaw. Everybody understand the argument? Why is that? Because the older it is, the fewer times it's been copied. Right? Right? Right, that's true. That's true. But the translations we have are still based upon the copies. Right. right. And, and some of what you said I think is accurate in that it was very expensive. I mean, you'd have to employ a man for four or five years of his life to make a single copy of the Bible. You didn't have it on your iPhone in the ancient world, right? You didn't have 18 of them on your bookshelf. I mean, it was, it was a very precious books. Only rich people were literate, Okay. Because there was no way to practice. There was no Dr. Seuss books to read to your kids. There was no way to practice. In fact, before 1800, 96% or something like that of the world was illiterate. Couldn't read. Even rich people, even sometimes kings. So the only thing about that is that yes, there would be penalties to copying. But who's going to know? Mm. Who's going to know? Only other scribes, right? Because the illiteracy rate was just incredibly high. And, and I mean, there's, there's times when you have lords over, I mean, they have peasants and serfs and vassals, and they cannot read. That's the world we lived in before. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So now we have this great literacy and research and all of our abilities to look into all these things. And what it in essence comes down to is quality versus quantity. But here is the way, reason both are reasonable. First of all, I don't have to tell you why quality is a reasonable argument. It is a reasonable argument. That's why I respect it. The quality argument says closer to the source. I mean, Kim's copy would be less prone to error than Bill's because it's been copied fewer times. That's easy to understand. The quality argument, though, would say, we have 5,000 copies that are newer. There's no way that those 5,000 copies all were copied from those three. Right? So they were copied from many, many more older sources. And how likely, I mean, it's also very likely that there are three that are not perfect either. Perhaps since these 5,000 most all agree on all these things, What's the chance that those three are an anomaly and these 5,000 represent all the many, many, many copies that brought them to this point? Does that make sense? Both of those are reasonable ways to look at it, I think. I think. And 
I just have chosen, I like the Textus Receptus for one basic reason. I don't find any of the texts in the Textus Receptus to be in any way different in tone or character than the rest of the books in which they are placed. Ron disagrees clearly because he moaned. Uh. Right. Mark 16 is though interesting because it is in one of those old three. Yeah, it's in one of them. And so Mark 16 actually has more quality textual evidence than this John 8. John 8's not in any of them. The other reason I kind of have a trouble with it is I have great respect for those who have convictions and stand by their convictions. I'm just giving you carry 101. This is an opinion right here. I do not have respect for the fact that John 8 is in the NIV. If you believe something, you should stick to your guns. Why would they eliminate Acts 8.37 and make you skip from verse 36 to 38, but leave in 12 verses that have less textual evidence from their philosophy of a quality argument than any of the others? You know why? Nobody buys a Bible without the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. You know what I mean? I just don't like that. I think if you have a conviction, I would respect them much more. If they, and you, if you believe that that's the best argument and you want to take scissors and cut John 8, 1 through 11 out of your Bible, I'll respect you for it. Because under that philosophy of interpreting and translating scripture, that would be, I mean, that, it shouldn't be there. Just like they would say Acts 8, 37 shouldn't be there. But they don't put Acts 8, 37 in, but they do put John 8, 1 through 11 in. Why? Because they can get away with the one, but they can't sell Bibles if they do the other way. I don't like that. That's just my opinion. Oh no, I'm saying they think it was made up. I think the other way. I like the quantity argument. It's in all those 5,000 manuscripts the King James was translated from. I mean, the vast majority of them. So it's got plenty of textual evidence from the Textus Receptus approach, the quantity approach, just not from the quality approach. Does that make sense? Then in the back? Like evil from John James chapter 1. True. Good point. Yeah. Good, good point. I'm going to leave, we're out of time today, so you're going to have maybe a lot of questions about this. Write them down so you don't forget, put them in your Bible, whatever version it may be. 
put them in your Bible and bring them back next week and we'll discuss them. Thank you.